This is Stacy Harbaugh and Marcus Slayton with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in downtown Madison. Here's tonight's headlines. The Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled today that a trans woman cannot change her legal name because she's a registered sex offender. The court says the state law does not allow people on the sex offenders registry to change their names. The AP reports the court's conservative majority cited the severity of the crime as the reason to deny her appeal. Only identified in court documents as Ella, she was convicted of sexually assaulting a child when she was 15. She's now 22. Her lawyers argued that not allowing her to change her name violates her free speech rights. The dissenting justices emphasized the importance of a person's name to their identity, arguing the denial subjects her to abuse and discrimination. Wisconsin Secretary of State Doug LaFollette has been threatened with legal action after failing to send documents to Congress. A joint resolution passed by GOP lawmakers in January called for an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that would limit the federal government's power, impose term limits on Congress members, and impose fiscal restraints. LaFala has not sent these documents to Congress, according to Republican Senator Kathleen Bernier from Chippewa Falls. She says she'll file a lawsuit unless LaFala complies. LaFala tells the Wisconsin State Journal his office lacks the money to do so, but LaFala says he has ordered supplies and will mail the documents by August 1st. The head of an internship program, which trains people of color for Dane County Highway Department jobs, is under fire for mismanagement and anti-black discrimination, reports the State Journal. The program is now under county investigation. Some workers claim millions of dollars have been misspent by program instructor Luis Rodriguez, resulting in underprepared highway workers and higher rates of dropout among black interns, a claim that's disputed by county highway officials. And now on to today's top stories. Opponents of the Cardinal Hickory Creek power line have long argued that the approval of the project in 2019 was a biased decision. Today, the Supreme Court ruled that the Public Service Commission member does not need to give up private records that could have substantiated those allegations. WRT producer Nate Wiggyhout has more. The state Supreme Court ruled today that a former utilities regulator who later applied for a job on the project he approved does not need to turn over his phone records. The case centers around Mike Hipsch, who served on the Public Service Commission in 2019 and helped to approve the construction of the Cardinal Hickory Creek line. But Hipsch later applied for a job with one of the companies building the Cardinal Hickory Creek power line and has admitted that he has had over 300 private conversations with We Energy officials. Hipsch has stated that those conversations were just friendly talks between friends. Critics fighting the project, though, maintain that there could have been something more to those private conversations. Today, the state Supreme Court ruled that Hipsch does not need to turn over his phone records. The ruling overturns a decision by a Dane County judge last year who ordered Hipsch to turn over all private conversations between him and the private business groups constructing the line. 
The 102-mile-long power line would run from Dane County into the state of Iowa. In May, a federal appeals court ruled that the line could not cross the Mississippi River, effectively blocking the project from completion. Regardless, the American Transmission Company, or ATC, are still constructing the line in both Wisconsin and Iowa. Jennifer Filipiak is the executive director of the Driftless Area Land Conservancy, a group that protects natural areas in Wisconsin and has been fighting the power line's construction since 2019. Filipiak says that the 300 phone calls could have influenced Hipsch's decision. Well, we're looking to find bias. You know, this is someone who sits on the Public Service Commission and is making very big decisions on how ratepayers um, are going to be, how ratepayers' dollars are going to be spent. Um, and how we're going to, you know, energize our future, I guess you could say. And if, if you have hundreds of calls and secret texts and all that with, with folks that really want this project to, to pass Public Service Commission review, it, you know, then it, it just, it takes the process and um, it undermines public confidence in the process. The court, which ruled 4-3 along party lines today, says the conservation groups did not provide enough evidence that Hipsch was biased in his decision. Judge Brian Hagedorn, writing a concurring opinion, called the accusations, quote, meritless and borderline frivolous, end quote. Filipiak says that the 300 private phone calls is more than enough evidence. 300 calls in a year, if you think about, you know, the most important people in your lives, in your lives. You know, one of those people for me is my mother. I don't talk to my mom almost every day in a year on the phone. You know, I mean, it's just so to put it in context, I mean, this is a lot. This is endless calls, lunches, dinners, golf outings. And and the 300 calls with that one individual is, is one thing that he admitted. That's just one part of it. So to say that there's nothing suspicious there, that it's not worthy of diving into and putting putting um, Commissioner Hips on the stand, it just it really just boggles the mind. Ultimately, the court ruled that regulators and other public officials should be presumed impartial in all decision making, and that they are able to set aside personal relationships when deciding a case. Ryan Walsh, Hips's attorney in the case, says that he is beyond happy about the ruling. For two years, no no court had had yet adopted our view which is the, the correct view, that there are no real claims of bias here, only innuendo, only speculation, and the court made clear that anytime you want to target a judge or an adjudicator, you need actual evidence of wrongdoing. Matt Sweeney with the Public Service Commission also applauded today's decision, saying that it reaffirms the integrity of the commission and protects public officials against frivolous and unfounded claims of bias. Today's ruling did not rule on the merits of the overall case challenging the line and only ruled that Hipsch does not have to turn over private phone records. The case determining the fate of the power line will go before the U.S. Court of Appeals on September 28th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. A new report shows that Wisconsin is falling behind in public education spending. WORT reporter Andy Barrow has the story. In 2020, the most recent year for which data is available, Wisconsin spent $12,740 per student. That's around 5% less than the national average, and it's in line with nearly a two-decade trend of Wisconsin lagging behind other states in public education spending. That's according to a new report from the Wisconsin Policy Forum, a nonpartisan research organization that examined public school spending between 2002 and 2020. 
Sarah Shaw is the forum's senior education policy researcher who authored the new report. She says that while Wisconsin school spending has grown year by year, the state has still spent comparatively less than other states. The state is increasing the amount that it puts toward education, but the rate at which that spending is increasing is a slower rate than what we see in the national average. And in fact, Wisconsin had the third smallest increase in the nation, with the exception only of Idaho and Indiana had smaller increases. According to the report, Wisconsin ranked 11th highest in per-pupil spending among all states in 2002. In 2020, however, Wisconsin ranked 25th in spending per pupil. Shaw says that this funding decline has consequences for some of the state's public schools. So it might look very different from district to district, but in general, we especially hear in recent years as um, the nation has been experiencing record inflation, that it's getting harder to do anything extra apart from keep up with regular operating expenses. The federal pandemic relief dollars are helping a little bit there, um, but they are one-time dollars. And we hear a lot of concern from education officials that when those dollars dry up, they're not sure what they'll be able to do to um, really address the needs that may well have existed prior to the pandemic and were either exacerbated and or brought to light in a different way because of the pandemic. However, the funding decline is actually worse than it sounds. Where most other states have seen their public school enrollment increase since 2002, Wisconsin has actually seen a nearly 4% decline. As Shaw explains, this means the per-pupil number can be misleading. And so taking into consideration enrollment is important when we're talking about per-pupil figures because what we see is that with Wisconsin's enrollment decreasing, that means the amount per-pupil actually probably would have gone down further if the enrollment had stayed the same. And the fact that our enrollment decreased actually probably makes our per-pupil figure look a little bit better than it would otherwise. Wisconsin public schools receive 93% of their total funding from a combination of state and local taxes. According to Shaw, school spending has slowed in part because the state has cut taxes since 2002. So as the proportion of residents and business owners' income that's collected via taxes, as that percentage decreases, that means that there's less money available to state and local governments. And since one of the primary responsibilities of state and local governments is to fund education, if they have less money to work with, almost necessarily education is going to receive less money. Um, And that's what we see over time, is that at the same time that Wisconsin's education spending was slowing its growth, the percentage of residents and business owners' um, income that was getting collected via state and local taxes also decreased. So these two were happening in tandem and indeed causally were causally related. Between 2002 and 2019, Wisconsin went from collecting about 11% of the residents' total revenue to just over 10%. Although that might seem like a small difference, it meant that the state had $2.5 billion less to spend in 2019 than it did in previous years. One option for school districts to make up the money is in asking voters to approve extra dollars in local ballot referenda. The one policy option we see actually a number of local school districts already exercising, um, which is the option of going to referendum. And a school district will go to referendum 
in cases where they believe they essentially don't have enough money to be able to do what they want to do as a district. And they put that on a ballot to residents, to voters, to say, essentially, will you opt into raising your taxes by more so that you can fund our public schools? And in those cases, it's then up to voters directly to decide on their ballots, either, yes, I'm going to vote for this referendum, or no, I'm not going to vote for that. So that's at a very local level, a policy option that we see many school districts already exercising. And in in fact, a number of cases where voters are saying, yes, we do want to fund more. We want to have more money going to our public schools. From 2002 to 2020, voters in Wisconsin passed more than 1,000 referenda to provide additional funds to their local school districts. Reporting for WORT, this is Andy Barrow. It's now 6.19 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Rape Crisis Center of Dane County is out with a new sexual and reproductive health center located at 2801 Coho Street. The new center is a place to access everything from contraception to lube. For more, WORT reporter Layla Ma spoke with Rape Crisis Center co-executive director Dana Pelabon earlier today. I'm on the line with Dana Pelabon, the co-executive director of the Rape Crisis Center in Dane County, and also she's currently on the board of directors for Outreach LGBTQ Plus Center and World Builders. We're talking about the Rape Crisis Center opening a new sexual and reproductive health center. Dana, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. Tell us about this new health center. What sort of new things are you offering that did not offer before? We wanted to pivot our services to be able to respond to what has happened with the Supreme Court decision. And one of the things that our survivors in particular have been experiencing a lot of fear around is the ability to access emergency contraception. And we want people to be able to access free items without barriers, without necessarily having to go to the hospital, without having to wait time periods for things to be delivered, because we know that right now there are a lot of people who are experiencing that same fear and are purchasing emergency contraceptive in particular as a just-in-case. So we wanted to have a space where people could come in, receive emergency contraception, receive condoms, both internal and external, dental dams, personal lubricant, information about each of those products and items so that people have immediate access to the things that they need without fear, without question. Um, there's no registration for these items. You come into our office, we have a center where you can take what you need. I mean, it's important that people have the ability to make the choices that they need to make for their reproductive and sexual health. And we wanted to be able to respond to that. So we have opened up our office to anybody that wants to come in and obtain these items. Essentially, we we have you come straight to our office Monday through Friday between 9 and 5. We have a few open shelves for people to walk in grab what they need, and leave. So we want to make it easy. Uh, We want to make it accessible. 
and it is also free. Tell us more about all the different situation the Rape Crisis Center is there for. How many people do you assist in a year? We assist hundreds of people a year. So we have several different areas that we work in. So our main services are crisis services. So we have a 24-hour helpline, both an English language and a Spanish language helpline. And those are that is accessible to anyone that has experienced sexual violence or people who、um, their situation get advice, get emotional support. We also have advocates that respond to every. Forensic nurse exam. We have advocates that will respond to law enforcement calls if the survivor would like for us to be there. We are available to people who have experienced sexual assault or sexual violence at any point in their life. So we have people who call us where the incident happened 20 years ago, and we support them through that. We have also expanded to include、uh, therapeutic services. So we have a therapy wing, and we also have CCS services, which is a program. Through the county, where we offer expanded case management services for those who have mental health diagnosis or an AOTA diagnosis, we then also have an outreach and education department, and they are in the schools, they are in workplaces, they are at not-for-profit, giving education, doing outreach, making sure that there are prevention activities happening, and we also have this wonderful group of youth that we call the Game Changers, and that is a youth advocacy program. Where they decide how it is that they want to change the narrative、um, around sexual violence, and they do trainings throughout the year. They do projects. We support them through those projects. So we are working really hard to fill the needs of persons who have experienced sexual violence and the loved ones who have experienced that with the, the survivors. How long have you been planning this new sexual and reproductive health center? Did overturning of access to reproductive rights have anything to do with the timing of this opening? So yes, the Supreme Court decision absolutely precipitated what was happening. We knew that this case was on the docket, and I hate to say hopeful. There was some hope that the Supreme Court would not make the decision.、Um, and then when the leak came out, it became apparent that things, the landscape might it might be changing fairly fast. And in response to that, we work to connect with Wakasa. Wakasa is our is our state lobbying agency, and they work with SA agencies throughout the state. We work to connect with them to find out what other agencies were doing. We talk to other agencies that have been offering these services. Um, because care was not easily accessible in some parts of the state, and talked about what we could offer in accordance to the laws in the state of Wisconsin, and started moving that forward. We officially announced yesterday, once we had enough supplies to be able to to formally say. We are a place that you can come. But now the Supreme Court has overturned the Roe, and Wisconsin has an almost complete ban on abortion. What does this new center can do for the pregnant people who are looking for abortion? If people are looking for abortive services, we will work with them to give them the resources that they need to call. We do not want to recreate the wheel. There are organizations that have been doing this work for a while. And so we work to connect people with those organizations. We work to help supply funding if that is what is needed and is not available through the organizations that are currently in place. We do emotional support, what it is that we can. 
um, to make sure that people get the resources that we need. We don't just hand you a number and send you on. We'll help you work through your situation to find the best solution for you. RCC has 24 hours helplines for survivors, and you also mentioned about it. And also, you provide the helpline volunteer training. What would you say to people that are looking to help survivors at the rape crisis center? Absolutely. So uh, we do a good portion of the time of our helpline is staffed by volunteers, and we have a very rigorous volunteer training that's run by our volunteer coordinator Alex. She works with people who are interested in volunteering. We talk to you about what the process looks like, and then they go through 20 hours of training regarding sexual assault, regarding sexual violence, intersections of oppression,、um, because that's important to know when you are talking with survivors, because not all. Experiences are the same. We talk about how to best support people over the phone, and then we also give them a whole bunch of resources that they can give to folks.、Um, and then our volunteers also interact with our on-call staff at night to make sure that if there is a law enforcement call or there is a forensic nurse exam call, that we get our on-call staff to the place that they need to be to support the survivor in the way that they need to be supported. Looking forward, what are you looking to do in a post-Roe, Wisconsin? So, looking forward, we are looking to support those that are doing the legislative work. I am on committees、uh, throughout the state, looking for. For ways access point in the county itself, there are several organizations that meet several times a month to talk about how to best coordinate services for survivors. So the work that we have already been doing is has been a little bit intensified. You know, this is what our job is. Our job is to interface for survivors and and the work that they need done.、Um, so. What we try to do is make sure that we are listening to our survivors.、Uh, one of the groups that we work with is a county group, and we just separated that group to have a survivor-based group that gives us ideas that they would like for us to implement. So we want to make sure that the survivors' voices are centered in our work. So we're always asking for feedback. We are always working to make sure that the people who have the least access are also taken care of. We really do try. To make sure that we are listening to all of the people and getting as much survivor voice as possible, and as they feel comfortable. Do you have any final thoughts that you would like to share with us today? If you are looking to receive help or looking to talk, we do have our helplines that are available. Our English helpline is six zero eight two five one seven two seven three, and our Spanish language line is six zero eight two five eight two five six seven. Feel free to call us at any point in time, twenty four hours a day, seven days a week.、Uh, we are here to support you, and we are here to center what your needs are and work for what it is that you need done. I have been speaking with Dana Palabon, the co-executive director of the Rape Crisis Center in Dane County, and also she is on the board of directors for Outreach LGBTQ Plus Center and World Builders. Dana, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you so much. The time is now six thirty-three, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host Marcus Slayton here with fellow host Stacy Harbaugh. Thanks for joining us. 
Yesterday, the Wisconsin Supreme Court issued a decision which will hinder the ability to recover attorney fees for people who bring open records lawsuits. Open government advocates and three of the court's justices contend that the decision will have serious chilling effect on transparency in state and local government. This week on Transparency Talk, our contributors Jennifer, er, I'm sorry, our contributors Jonah Chester and Tom Kamenick, founder of Wisconsin Transparency Project, unpack the decision and what it means for government transparency in Wisconsin. All right, it is every other Thursday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line, as is tradition by Tom Kamenick, founder and president over at the Wisconsin Transparency Project. Tom, how are you holding up today? Do you remember a month ago, Jonah, when I was super excited about the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruling that third parties couldn't file lawsuits to stop the release of records? How could I forget, Tom? How could I forget? We are way, way down from that apex, and we are down in the nadir of open records law. Or in the vernacular, we may be viewing a dumpster fire, a flaming dumpster fire of open records laws in Wisconsin today. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about this nadir slash dumpster fire that we're in, Tom. You know, the Wisconsin Supreme Court just issued a ruling yesterday, which I know you and other open, uh, open government advocates across the state are decrying. Tell me a little bit more about this decision. The five-second explanation is the Supreme Court made it much, much, much harder to get attorney's fees when you file a lawsuit seeking records requests. To understand this, you have to go back to the statute, because the statute, the open records law, has a fee-shifting provision. Lots of laws do that, and they say if the plaintiff wins, the government has to pay their attorney's fees. Uh, Civil rights cases are like that, and the open records and open meetings laws are like that, too. So the statute says that the requester can get their attorney fees if they prevail. It's very simple. It doesn't say you have to win and get a judgment in the case from the court. It doesn't say that. It just says prevail. You have to win. You have to get your records. For 40 years, the law has been that custodians couldn't avoid having to pay attorney fees by voluntarily, air quotes, turning over records after their suit. Because that's the whole thing, right? Because if you require a court judgment then you're just going to get a whole bunch of custodians who get sued and then turn over the records and face absolutely no consequences for it. And then the requester is out their attorney's fees and makes it much harder to do any of this kind of work on a contingency basis. So like I said, for, for almost 40 years, that was the law is that you didn't have to get a court judgment. If there was a voluntary production, you had to show that, that the, lawsuit caused the release, that the lawsuit pressured, forced them into releasing the records. And it wasn't just, hey, we were working on it really hard and we were busy. And once we got to it, we turned it over to you. You wouldn't get fees then. Now the Supreme Court says, nope, actually, we're going to change 40 years of open records law and say you have to have a court judgment. So you have to get the judge to rule that the denial was illegal. But there's a problem with that in the records law. And that's because the way the records law is written Typically, once you once the custodian turns over the record, you can't get the judge to rule on the merits of the denial because the mandamus order, which normally would say you are hereby directed to turn over the records, becomes moot because they already have turned over the records. So now, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we've dumped into a place where 
requesters are going to have a lot harder time getting their attorney's fees, which means that attorneys can't do this on a contingency basis to the same degree they used to be able to do, which means a whole bunch of people now can't afford to get justice, which means that all the custodians know, hey, I'm never going to get sued for this anymore. And even if I do get sued, I can just turn over the records right away so I can delay as long as I want and I can deny things for the most frivolous of reasons and I will face no consequences for it. Now, I think the court's minority opinion simmered this down to a really good point. They wrote, uh, quote, by reinterpreting the law to reward government actors for strategically freezing out the public's access to records, today's decision will chill the public's right to an open government, unquote. Yeah, I really want to emphasize here how this will essentially, you know, increase costs for people who are dealing with problems getting records from a government organization. Tell me more about the chilling effect here. Yeah, nobody's got the money for this. You know, the media companies that are out there decades ago, they had the kind of budgets that would allow them to engage in a bunch of strategic litigation over access to government information, but that, that just doesn't happen anymore. And almost all of my clients are just individuals who are interested in government practices or they're small little watchdog organizations with shoestring budgets. And just to file the lawsuit, just to get in the courthouse door, it takes me, that takes me six, seven hours of work. That's $2,000 right there. And to actually fight the case, that's fifteen, twenty thousand $20,000. And if there's an appeal, add $20,000 for every level of that appeal at, at, a, at a minimum. And it's, it, it's so expensive. And that's why the legislature said we're going to have this fee shifting statute. Because the, the normal American rule for courts is that parties pay their own attorney's fees, win or lose. But there are a whole bunch of laws where good government actors have said, yeah, we need to make sure that people can enforce their rights in court and that people don't have to bankrupt themselves to do so in court. And so they created those fee shifting provisions uh, so that essentially, because it's borne by either taxpayers or the taxpayers insurance companies, the harms that government cause are borne by everybody as taxpayers, not by the one person who was screwed over by the government actors. Yeah. And I want to emphasize something you just you put there, you put it in terms of moving through the court system, but I just want to boil it down to a simple level. The cases you bring to court a lot of times, I know because we've talked about a few on the show, they're not simple, easy, done. It's a month. We're in. We're at. I know there was one you did with the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel over uh, uh, COVID records at certain businesses. You were in litigation on that for like what, like a, a year and a half plus over that amount. Exactly. Yeah. So these are these these open records cases are not quick cases to solve. One of the ironies here is that if there's a big fight, you're probably going to get paid if you win. So if if the case goes through and the government custodian decides to fight it then you are probably going to get that uh, that court ruling at the end of the case and you'll get paid. But what this really dampens down is the quick little cases where it's incredibly obvious that the government custodian is violating the law and has no good reason to do it. Because normally in those cases, I file the lawsuit, they turn over the records and they pay a couple thousand dollars. And the ability to bring a large number of those lawsuits is what the Wisconsin Transparency Project was formed for because they're not economical to spend $2,000 to get your records a couple months sooner or to fight for a couple redactions. That doesn't make sense as a as a matter of dollars and cents. But uh, because of the fee shifting provisions, I was able to bring a whole bunch of those 
little lawsuits and make sure custodians know, hey, if you mess around with this, you're going to get sued and you're going to get hauled into court and you're going to lose. If, if I'm reading into what you're telling me correctly, the chill is going to fall hardest on like the small cases, right? Brought by like the individual person or like the small group of people who just want to learn more about, I don't know, maybe let's say what their local school board is up to or what their local city government in a town of like 10,000 is up to. Is that a good read? Yeah, it just gives custodians the incentives to ignore little requests from uh, non-powerful people, people they know are are not likely to have the resources to mount a legal challenge on their own. It's going to be bad. This needs to be fixed, and we're we're calling on the legislature to, to fix this. This actually happened in the federal courts where for decades it was the same thing. There was this causation theory, and then the Supreme Court came along and said, no, that actually doesn't count. And very quickly, U.S. Congress fixed FOIA and said, no, no, we meant you can get your uh, you, you, you can get your fees if, if you get your records, even if the court doesn't order the records to be turned over. And we really hope the legislature and governor come together on this. It's not a partisan issue at all. Government transparency, everybody can get behind it. So the next step would take the form of an actual piece of legislation or a bill to basically codify this into state law then. Yeah, it's a, it's a legislative fix. That's one avenue. There are other potential legal strategies in court that we're reviewing. There's a you know, handful of us kind of experts on plaintiff side open record litigation. And we've been already brainstorming ideas of, of, of how to get around this and how to try to make make courts issue rulings on the merits of denials so that we don't get uh, get fees lost out. Tom, thanks as always so much for joining me this week. We're just trying to make people people smarter and more engaged about this issue. Last week on part one of our Faith Communities, feature contributor David Ahrens attended a service at the Deer Park Buddhist Center in the town of Oregon. This week, David speaks with Geshe Tenzin Shurup, the spiritual leader of the center, about the faith. This is the second part of the segment of our Faith Communities on Deer Park Buddhist Center. Deer Park was established to make the teachings of the Buddha in the Tibetan tradition accessible to all. The center was founded 45 years ago by a venerated Tibetan scholar, Geshe Sopa. I met with his successor, Geshe Sherab, and his translator, Katrina Brooks, in his home kitchen on the temple grounds. Geshe has a buoyant personality. He is happy and animated when he discusses how people can end their suffering and dissatisfaction, and that the Buddhist teaching provides a path to reach that state. In the first part of our interview, I asked Geshe, what are the qualities of someone who is truly a Buddhist? So in terms of like what we mean um, by a Buddhist, it is again based upon this understanding of the way that things are that then one engages with the path element, which is these two sets of like um, recognizing that there is a cause of suffering. So then there's the resultant suffering of that. Mm -hmm. And there is a way to be freed from that suffering. There's a method by which we can achieve a liberation 
liberation from mm -hmm. that suffering, which is what we call true cessations. And so by examining that, by examining the teachings of the Buddha and coming to the realization or understanding that they are infallible, that this is the, actually the way that things are, he's not teaching anything that is leading us astray, but these are sort of non-deceptive or infallible kind of teachings, that's where one then gives rise to a kind of faith in the Buddha. It's mm -hmm. based upon understanding what he has taught and seeing, oh, this is something that is infallible. It's not leading me astray in any way. And so thereby, that's sort of where one gives rise to the sense of faith in the Buddha mm -hmm. as being the protector in the sense that he's able to teach us what can get us out of suffering. I mean, when we talk about protection or sort of here, um, it, it, we call it going for refuge to the three jewels. A source of refuge is something that can protect you from suffering. And so the Buddha is the one who teaches these methods that are then the Dharma um, by that we put into practice ourselves. And those who have given rise to realizations or are striving in the practice of the Dharma are referred to as the Sangha. And so those are our sources of protection or refuge. And one who has kind of faith or confidence in those as being infallible objects of refuge would then be considered a I then asked Geshe, are Buddhist beliefs based on one's actual experience from the practice, and it's that experience that is the basis of faith, or is one expected to simply accept the teachings? <laughs> So it's definitely something where it involves one's own empirical investigation. I mean, um, so here it's important, like we see it as you investigate and you gain a little bit of understanding or certainty and then you continue to investigate mm -hmm. until you get more and more sort of certain about things. And that's the way that your faith will really become stable and solid. Um, so, I mean, you can have something where someone says something to you and you're like, oh, well, that's probably true because this is an honest person. And to a certain degree, that's like a, a right sort of reason, but we would like in in the terminology of Buddhists call that just a correct assumption mm -hmm. like you don't really have an understanding of that and so when something is said to you or like it said oh the Buddha said this it's something where we are supposed to investigate it for ourselves because that's the only way that you really have that kind of understanding of it you can't just get that kind of realization from someone just saying oh that's the way it is that's not a proper kind of reason but rather you need to make your own effort to investigate that for yourself so something like um, uh, the Buddha said their past and future lives well we need to investigate and it's something where for us we would say well that's only really your mind or your consciousness that you're investigating because clearly your body of this life isn't going to another life but um, it, based upon kind of gaining faith in that if we investigate for ourselves and say yeah you know I think there has to be a continuity to this mental continuum and it goes into future lives then you're really able to get into the sense of like oh there is a cause to my suffering is there a way to end that suffering and, and get into the four noble truths is there a form of meditation used in this practice the gong gabya yorberwa ani nanzo yeah so here when you say um, the word meditation um, in in Tibetan it's actually like that that word could be 
said as like getting used to something or getting habituated to something. Mm. So when we're talking about meditation, um, a lot of people in the West might think something that's like just a single pointed focus kind of meditation. But there's actually two sort of broad categories that we would say of meditation. There is um, placement meditation where you're really trying to focus on the stability of mind. like. Put it on one object, don't let it get distracted, don't let it move away in any way. But that doesn't increase your wisdom in any way. That doesn't increase your sort of analytical capacities. Mm. And we have then a whole category of what's called analytical meditation. So something about like thinking about past and future lives and really sitting there and contemplating that in a deep way would be considered meditation. That's analytical meditation because what you're doing is really thinking and investigating through things. And this is something that is to be done for all sorts of categories of phenomena. In the past, you've discussed the ten virtues is this part of the ethical basis that is a foundation of Buddhism last time we talked we um, uh, Kishila had likened it to a field that's sort of the field from which we're able to plant the seeds of higher qualities and, and give and um, ha- reap this harvest of eventually Buddhahood um, but so it's also the case that the, the ethics, particularly that of abandoning the 10 non-virtues, um, which are those like the, the killing, um, sexual misconduct and uh, stealing and then lying, divisive speech, um, harsh speech and gossip covetousness, malice, and wrong view, um, those 10 non-virtues are things that we are able to put into practice now. Like when we talk about the sort of things like bodhicitta, this aspiration to achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all sentient beings, having that genuinely is really something that's quite difficult to generate. But we can do these things of like abandoning, harming other beings and so forth. It's a practice that we're absolutely capable of doing and it's the most important thing especially as beginners to have as a foundation for getting to any of the rest of it so some people might think they want to meditate on emptiness and and you know realize selflessness and all of these things but you can't jump to that without having this kind of foundation in ethics and so while we might sort of try to emulate those other practices we should recognize that as beginners ethics is really the basis and the thing that is most precious most important for us to practice and we're most able to practice. So ethics, again, um, Geshe-la had referred to it as like the the first of a step in, in stairs. You can't sort of jump to the higher things without going on that step. Many religions propose that if one is faced with some adversity, such as illness or some other hardship, that one can pray or petition to their God and ask for assistance. Is that a practice in your tradition? Here, when it comes to um, like making requests to the Buddha, like making petitions uh, to the Buddha, some people would ask, like, well, um, do, do, is it actually the case that the Buddha's like blessings will descend on you if you make these kinds of requests? And it is um, the case that we do. We often make um, requests to uh, the Buddhas, and it's a matter of like requesting for um, their blessings. In and and so this is something where. Again, the Buddha's um, blessings, like finding the right words in English is sometimes hard, but like um, the blessings or their enlightened activities extend equally to all. Um, the, the sort of idea of the blessings of the Buddha and making requests in order to receive that blessing is to sort of get the conditions right on your side such that you're able to receive something that is always and continuously kind of going out toward all beings. And so 
then I just asked him to clarify the sort of language of what we mean by a blessing. Um, and this is really sort of like the, the word in Tibetan, I don't even know how to like put it quite in English, but it's almost like sort of like waves of the the magnificence of the Buddha. And what we mean by a blessing is like your mind turning towards something virtuous because it's something where when we give rise to virtue or sort of a positive attitude in our mind, those sorts of positive um, causes are going to lead to eventually the end of our suffering. And so when we talk about sort of receiving the blessings of the Buddha, it's really about turning one's mind like or Sometimes I've heard it translated as like inspiring one towards something positive. Thanks for listening. This has been David Ahrens for WORT News. It's 6.52 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Nikki Hollander, also known as Grandma Kitschy, has spent a good deal of her life saving discarded objects. She got so good at finding the sweet things that it's one of the ways she makes her living. In this episode of Radio Chipstone, Hollander tells contributor Jennifer Fields that time has not lessened her sense of responsibility when it comes to rescuing objects. It started basically in high school and I was thrifting and looking for all of the things that nobody wanted and things that were outrageous, including wearing all polyester um, clothes and leisure suit type of clothes, some ringer tees, you know, in the 90s. So I was wearing vintage clothes and stuff and, you know, real kitschy stuff there collecting. Then I just finally kind of got so much kitschiness and decided to do, I had to share it with the world and start selling it. It's interesting to me that A, Nikki, you were flammable. (laughs) (laughs) I could have, and I did melt several times in that polyester. (laughs) I could just imagine it. And B, you were collecting things that you had decided no one else wanted. Yes. At least I thought. Did you feel some connection with these objects, like you had to save them? Or was it part of your personality to seek out something that other people wouldn't find valuable? Mm, I think it was probably both. Um, I, I kind of did the same thing with my music tastes, too. And I kind of um, seeked out um things people had never heard of and kind of immersed myself in that too. But at, you know, thrift stores, it would just be something that caught my eye basically. And, you know, it, it would have to be colorful, of course. Um, So the things were just calling to me. And now I think I'm at the point 25 years later where I feel like I'm actually rescuing things. So I don't think I thought of it then as rescuing. Now I definitely rescue That's interesting because we usually think of things that are rescued as being alive or having some sort of life or agency to them. What calls to you to rescue these things? And I'll back up a little bit. I grew up with parents who grew up in the Depression. Mm -hmm. And so even though I don't collect a lot of stuff, when I start getting rid of stuff, I have to break myself of the habit of this has to go to a particular person. 
this person has to have this thing. So it's not, I, I don't know if I would call it rescuing it, but I feel like it's my responsibility to extend the life of this object somewhere where someone will take care of it. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. That would be a good way to put it. Um, when I would rescue something and I use, you know, air bunny quotes, um, the, it's like I see it on the shelf and I feel like it's been discarded already once and nobody wants it then. So then I wonder how long has it been sitting on the shelf and I grab it because it just kind of, I, I hate to Marie Kondo anything because I'm totally the opposite of minimalism, but it sparks joy, you know, and I think I just have a problem in my brain with too many different things sparking joy. Um, so then I feel like I've got to rescue them, put them in my house on display. And then when I've had my time with them, I can move them along to, to the, the hopeful, hopefully there's a next owner and you know, whether or not I give it to my sister as a birthday gift, which has happened before, or um, I sell it online or take it to a vintage show or whatever. Um, I just feel like I had a connection with it and I rescued it off the shelf. So it didn't have to go in the garbage, in the landfill, what have you. And then I pass it along to the next person. Hopefully they do the same thing. The object doesn't know it's sitting on the shelf. The object doesn't know when no one wants it. It doesn't have conscious, you know, it's, it doesn't know it exists. Mm -hmm. So where does that come in? Hmm. That's pretty deep. Um, Sometimes I get there, girl. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've always been deep. <laughs> uh, um, well, that's a good point. Um, I know that these things don't really breathe. Um but I, I just feel like, hmm, I feel like maybe there's a spirit around it or something. And, you know, I, I, I'll feel bad if, if the person that likes it doesn't ever get it. And it's almost like a prize, maybe a, a, a breathing prize. But then I also am really into the, the reduce, reuse, recycle aspect of it because I've been, you know, I've worked for multiple stores that have that essential quality about them as well, reselling used building products and keeping all that stuff out of the landfill. So, you know, something I'm I'm proud of that that's kind of a, a bonus, I guess. I'm not doing it just for that purpose. It's a bonus. For WORT, I'm Jennifer Fields. And that's a wrap for WORT's live local news at six. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Kaysinger. Your reporters tonight were Andy Barrow, Layla Ma, and Kristen Billings, and Emily Kaysinger on special assignment. Special thanks to feature contributors David Ahrens, Jonah Chester, and Tom Kamenick, and Jennifer Fields. 
Dylan Brogan engineered the show. Nate Wiggy helped produce this newscast. And Miss Sholly Pittman is the news director here at WORT. Thank you guys for listening. I'm your host, Marcus Slayton. Stay tuned for the Perpetual Notion Machine.